It's very striking because Jesus never commands us to get married and he never commands us to have children, but he does, in fact, command us to love one another as he has loved us. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, my name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on the Christ and Culture podcast, we will talk with Rebecca McLaughlin on the importance of friendship. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment, On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about Tom Brady. The NFL is back for a new season, and so is Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady. But Brady's return is not without drama, as some reports indicate that his family is, shall we say, less than pleased with his decision (laughs) to unretire and return to play quarterback for his 23rd season, which is a lot of seasons of football. Dr. Quinn, I doubt many of our listeners are superstar athletes, but I would wager that many of them have and will have questions about balancing work and family, which is really what all this boils down to. So, Dr. Quinn, how do we navigate these questions of balancing work and family? Let's be clear, first of all, that whether you love him or hate him, Tom Brady is the goat of all quarterbacks. So it's just remarkable what he's able to do at this age and stage of his career. I don't pretend to understand all the ins and and outs of his family situation, but the question is really not about Tom Brady, right? It's about work-life balance, work-family balance. Um, I'll just speak really personally here. Um, I talk a lot to our guys at church about uh, really three words here, engines, wagons, and seasons. So those are those are kind of my metaphors, and I put these together. I realize meta- the metaphors always break down somewhere, but uh, think about the engine and wagon piece first. Um, I oftentimes tell our guys just to evaluate. You've got to know who you are. How are you wired? How are you built? How are you gifted? And how... Uh, how well can you do these things that God's called you to do and gifted you to do? And that's that's sort of the engine evaluation. What kind of engine do you have? Um, which then is immediately associated with the wagon size. And this is where it gets more into the balance piece. Um, the wagon size, how much can you actually put into your wagon? So I've known guys over the years and gals who, I mean, they have just Corvette engines. They are very good at what they're able to do, what God's gifted them to do. But they can really only do one thing. And that's not a critique. That's just the way that they're wired. And that's really important to know about yourself, that if you give them one task, their, their attention and intensity towards that task is, is so high and their output on that is so good. But when you put that one thing in their wagon, that one thing has taken up 85% of the total space in that wagon. And that's something you've got to know about yourself. There's other people who they have much bigger wagons. One thing in that wagon takes up 40, 50%. So you can put some other things in there. And this is, this is the most important thing, I think, about this whole work-life balance. Knowing the size of your wagon relative to your engine, so to speak, and then being, having that virtue or that fruit of the Spirit that we call self-control to know when to, to really begin to draw boundaries and borders around that thing. So this is, this is where, very personally, um, I've tried to, I try to have a wagon that's about 85 to 90% full, but very intentionally have margin there. 
here's what that looks like practically. Um, everything that I get paid to do, so any job-related stuff, so I teach at Southeastern and work with the center, also pastor a small church, and I'm grateful to have quite a lot of help there. Um, and then I also do some consulting work. But anything that I'm paid to do, if I can't do it between 7 a.m. and 5 p.m., then it, it just has to be removed from the wagon entirely. This is where, and this is a season of life thing. So this is where we go from engines to wagons to seasons. The season of life that I'm in is I have four kids. Um, right now, my wife and I are the only drivers in the home. My daughter is very close to, to having her license, but not yet. So we're in that chauffeur season of life. Uh, we've got kids that play sports. Right now, it seems like their games all start at 4 o'clock, and they're all an hour away. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's sort of adjusting uh, the, the work requirements. And that's, that's also a, a season of the fall time of the year and what have you. But it's a season of life that, as a dad, I just refuse to regret. I refuse to look back and say, man, I worked too much, and I, I wasn't a good enough dad, or I wasn't attentive enough. So in that wagon and related to then that season, I want to be 85 to 90% full, and I also want to make sure that I establish some boundaries where between 7 o'clock and 5 o'clock, that's when I, I'm working. That is the things I get paid to do. And outside of that, when I go home, I want to be dad. Uh, I want to throw it like last night. I went home. My wife was working the concession stand for my, my daughter's volleyball game. So I had the three boys. We went home. We ate dinner together. We played an hour of, uh, of wiffle ball outside, and then we went and got ice cream. And I'm going to protect that vigorously. Like, I'll fight for that. Uh, I'm not going to look back and refuse it. But that, that forces, the only way that, that we can do that well is if we've, if we've sat back at some point and said, okay, what, what am I able to do? How big is that wagon? What can I put in it with still with some margin in it? And then of this season of life, what kind of boundaries, calendar boundaries, can I put in place to really protect that, to protect that and to let that entire decision process be governed by what it looks like to love God and to love my neighbors, especially my family in this time? What I hear from you is there's a lot of intentionality and thought put into that. Like it's not just uh, uh, let things happen and let the chips fall where they may. It's, yeah. it's, it sounds like you have very intentionally recognized what kind of engine you have, what kind of wagon space you have, and, and what season of life you're in. For our listeners, how, how do you determine what kind of engine you are? Or how yeah. do you determine how big your wagon is? Yeah. Like how, how do we yeah, do that's, that? that's the right kind of question. So. Um, the, the, the best thing is having really good and honest friends. So, um, and, and the re- reality is we don't, we don't know those things about ourselves until we stumble into accident, until we've made mistakes. Uh, one of my best friends, um, I won't name him here. Some of, some of our listeners may know him, but one of my best friends, I asked him to preach for me twice within a six-week period of time uh, a while ago. And for him, for him to preach once or twice a year is great, and he wants to do that. Um, but I asked him to preach twice, and he also has a, a full-time job. He's got a family. He helps coach his kids' ball teams. But he preached twice in a short period of time, and it just about killed him. Mm. He, he carries the sort of emotional responsibility of preaching and the amount of time it takes him to prepare. He carries that differently than other people do. And we didn't know, he didn't know that about himself. I didn't know that, or I wouldn't have asked him until we kind of went through that and realized we need to be careful about loading your wagon with that because that was heavier than you thought it was. Um, and so that's actually helped him to say no to some other things, not just teaching and preaching opportunities, but other things in life where he just knows that for him, uh, the kind of margin that he has to protect is if he, can't, if he can't have a certain amount of time off and time outside and time with his kids, that's his rejuvenating time, then he just can't get through that sort of seven to five, eight to five. But those are things he could only know after making those mistakes. So that I would say to our listeners, one, have some really honest friends and people that can help you to evaluate what you're gifted to do and how you carry the things in your wagon. 
Um, and then and then also recognize that you're going to learn from those mistakes. You might add a little bit into the wagon and realize this is not good. You've got to have the self-control to say no, to back that thing back out of your wagon. Um, and then also to move forward, hopefully, with a little more wisdom in those areas. So sometimes things are going to fall out of the wagon, and we got to learn from the times they spill out. What I do also hear, and I think if we're connecting this back to sometimes Tom Brady. Sometimes you have to kick things out of the wagon. Sometimes <laughs> you have to kick things out of the wagon. That's right, because the engine is sputtering. Yeah that's, uh, yeah, that's well said. Yeah, we have to kick it out. But what I also hear, and kind of tying this back to Tom Brady, is amongst those things in our wagons, if we have families, that has to be number one. That, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, after the Lord himself. But sure, this is where sure. anytime that I'm – and this is a daily occurrence for me. I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, here are the responsibilities that I have. But I also always imagine myself standing before the Lord. Can I hold my head high before the Lord with not only the things that, I have, that I've committed to, but the way that I'm carrying those things out? Can I hold my head high with that sermon? Can I hold my head high with that, that teaching, that lecture in class? Can I hold my head high with the way that I spent that last two hours? Whatever the case is. And if, if I find myself regularly feeling like I, I kind of have to hold my head down before the Lord, and that's an ongoing occurrence because I just can't do it all, then something's got to go. You know, that, that's where before the Lord, on my responsibilities in the wagon as well as with my family, if I'm, if I'm hanging my head regularly before God and before my wife and kids, something's got to change. And that, that's where I think that virtue uh, and that fruit of the Spirit that is self-control has to really be active in our lives. I don't know what kind of wagon or engine Tom Brady has, but it's got to be pretty heavy with all those Super Bowl trophies. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well said. Yeah. That, but that, too, this is the seasons thing. And, again, I don't pretend to understand uh, Tom Brady's situation. But if, in fact, his family is disappointed that he has recommitted to so much that goes into a season of NFL football, I can understand that. My, yeah. my kids would probably be disappointed if, um, if I were going to be gone that much too during this season of life. Those are the things we have to take into consideration. What do Christians need to reclaim? Today we're delighted to talk with Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca McLaughlin holds a PhD in Renaissance literature from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill College in London, UK. is also the author of multiple books. I'm going to list all of these here. I'll do it quickly. Some of them I trust our listeners have read. Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions from the World's Largest Religion. And I have to mention that was incredibly helpful for me, preaching through a Tough Questions series a few years ago, as well as probably the better known, The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims, uh, two others that have just come out, one that actually comes out, I believe, Rebecca, you said next week. Uh, so Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, How the First Female Disciples Help Us Know and Love the Lord, and then Confronting Jesus, Nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels. That comes out next week. Is that right? That's right. You've written a lot of books, and you have a lot more coming. Rebecca, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so uh, she'll want me to say she is recovering from a cold, so her voice is particularly raspy today. But that's all right. Rebecca, first of all, just tell us who you are, where you're from. Based on your accent, I'm thinking South Georgia, mm. somewhere in there. So just tell us who you are, where well, you're from. Well, I'm one flesh with a guy from Oklahoma. Yeah. So that gives me some, some American cred. Yeah, there. <laughs> but I was born and raised in England and had no desire or intention to leave my homeland until the Lord united me with this guy from Oklahoma. I feel like he's one of the only Americans I've ever met who really doesn't want to live in England. Hmm. Yeah, I keep meeting Americans. Oh, I wish I lived in England. He mm-hmm. d- he didn't want to live in England. So, <laughs> did you? But you didn't want to live in America either. No, um, but I thought to myself, 
making a sacrifice for another Christian is often the right thing to do. Mm. And I'm going to trust the Lord. And so, and given that he was unhappy in England, I thought, you know, maybe I'll be happy in America. And looking back now, I see it's, it's so often the case, isn't it, in life. You have no idea what the future holds. Yeah. But when you look back over your life, you see the ways the Lord has guided your steps. And yeah. I see that in really profound ways. And one of the great joys to me now is being able to do some ministry in the UK, which I probably wouldn't have ever got to do if I just stayed in the UK, actually, um, yeah. in quite the same ways. So being able to contribute to the gospel work there has been a joy. So you live in Boston, Massachusetts, or in Cambridge, Massachusetts, rather, just outside mm-hmm. of Boston, right next door to little-known Harvard University. Um, well, right next door to MIT is where we oh, actually yeah. live, but yeah. not far from little-known Harvard University. Why, why Boston? So I know your husband is an engineer. You have three mm-hmm. kids. Why Boston or why Cambridge? Did he, he just landed a job there? Or you wanted to be there? No, I landed a job there. Oh, wow. um, okay. Yeah, I was working for the Veritas Forum, which folks may have heard of. Uh, I spent nearly 10 years there. And one of the pieces of my role was um, identifying, getting to know and equipping Christian professors at leading secular universities um, in fields as diverse as physics and philosophy and psychology and history. Hmm. And at the end of that, I felt like I had something of a roadmap of where the best Christian thought was at when it came to a whole range of questions Hmm. and started writing and speaking, sort of drawing on, on those insights from those experts. So... Yeah, so you, you grew up in the Christian home. To tell us a little bit about that and how you got to kind of where you are now as speaker or writer. I grew up in a, in a mixedly Christian home, I would say. Um, my mum's whole family is Catholic. My dad's whole family is sort of Church of England, um, a mix on both sides as to whether people had any authentic faith in Jesus versus it was just like a cultural part of their heritage. So I I was raised going to church, um, but not initially at all to sort of evangelical churches. Mm. Um, I remember from at least age nine, and I think certainly, I I don't remember a time when I didn't believe, but from at least age nine, I remember being very sure about Jesus and knowing that if Jesus is who he claims to be, then I must tell my friends. Mm. And I was in very sort of rigorous academic environments from an early age. And so most of my friends were not Christians at all and had intellectual and sort of moral objections to Christianity. So in some ways, I feel like I've been having the kinds of conversations that I get to have today in more public ways. I've been having those sort of in private ways for almost as long as I can remember. And so right now you spend the majority of your time, you, you travel and speak a fair bit like you're doing here at Southeastern. And you're also writing. I'm just curious to know, what are you working on right now? And what kind of books are are really in your heart to write going forward? Yeah, I'm right now working on a book on friendship called um, No Greater Love, uh, Rediscovering or Recovering or Describing, I forget, um, a beautiful (laughs) biblical vision for friendship. Yeah, And it's something that I I care a lot about. And I think the scriptures have a, a lot to teach us on the subject of friendship. Yeah but that we haven't necessarily lent into that as Christians. Um, and right after that, I'm going to write a book on truth Fantastic. For, we'll, for talk more, we'll, yeah. we'll talk more about that later. But friendship. So last night, um, Rebecca, you, you gave a talk here at Southeastern, four, four things that we need to reclaim as Christians. And one of those, the last one was sexuality. And as sort of a sub point to that was uh, an emphasis on friendship, which I was curious, by the way, if you were to add a fifth, would you just break out? We need to actually reclaim friendship. That might be a fifth thing to reclaim. But just talk to us about why is friendship 
so important to you at this moment? Why do you feel like it's such an important talking point? What do you mean when you refer to friendship? Mm, mm. Just talk to us about that. Mm. The night that Jesus was betrayed to his death, he told his disciples, he was giving them a new commandment. They should love one another as he loved them. And then later that evening, he said it again. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And I've been pondering on that because Jesus said those words right after Judas had gone out into the night to betray him. And right before Peter was going to deny even knowing him three times. So he wasn't naive or um, kind of rose-tinted glasses when it comes to to friendship and the potential for friends truly hurting us. And yet he commands us to love one another in friendship Mm. in ways that resemble his love for us. It's very striking because Jesus never commands us to get married and he never commands us to have children. But he does, in fact, command us to love one another as he has loved us. And I think both in my own lived experience and as I read the scriptures I see a vital role for intimate human connection not always but but typically between people of the same sex Mm. that is different from what we're called to in marriage and different from what we're called to in you know parenting Mm. Um, but is is something that is profoundly important for our mission and for our formation and for our joy and as I say, I, I see that in my own life and I feel like I'm someone who's, who's cared a lot and invested a lot in friendship for a long, long time, which means but both that I have wonderful friendships today and that I've made almost every friendship mistake in the book mm. <laughs> at yeah. some point in my life. And so yeah. I, feel, I feel excited to, to write this book. It's fascinating to me. I was rereading C.S. Lewis's you know, his famous book on the four loves and his chapter on friendship recently as I was preparing to write this book. What struck me is like that that chapter has some great insights, but almost none of them are drawn from the scriptures. It's actually sort of oddly not very Christian. (laughs) And yet this is, at least in my conversations with with believers, anytime you talk about friendship as Christians, they say, oh, C.S. Lewis, like this is kind of our go-to place. I'm thinking, you know, maybe, maybe we need to take a closer look at what the Bible says. Yeah. Lewis was drawing actually more on kind of classical models and authors than on on scriptural um, models and authors. And not that the classical um, authors have nothing to to tell us that's important, um, but I think the Bible has even more important things to tell us. So last night you you made this comment, and the way that you phrased it is jarring a bit because of just our cultural moment, but there's a lot of insight here. You said we have to be for same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. Now, and you went on to qualify. You don't mean romantic same-sex relationships or erotic same-sex relationships, but same-sex relationships nonetheless, and you really dug in on friendship there. Tell us, what does that even look like? And especially, illustrate it from your own life. What do these kinds of friendships look like? What's the mm. discipline and the practice of friendship? Mm. I think friendship is a, a profoundly important um, mode of love, um, and it's importantly different from other kinds of love. So what does that mean? One of the beauties of marriage is that Brian and I are kind of locked into our marriage to where it's not a question of um, 
active ongoing choice. I mean, we, we should be choosing each other in a relationship, but like actually there is a givenness to our, our marriage that at this point um, it's not a, a question of, of choice for us. We have no freedom to um, engage in marriage with, with other people. And that's, that's one of the, the, the beauties of marriage. One of the beauties of friendship is that unlike marriage, it's not exclusive. And unlike marriage, it is actually importantly a relationship chosen on the basis of freedom. You know, I, there's no kind of particular moral obligation for me to be close friends with one person versus another. Um, I think it's it's differentiated even from community. I think there's a certain sort of givenness um, about community that we should experience as Christians. We should be in community with people who aren't like us and who we may not even like mm. um, in the, the body of the church. And there's a sort of givenness to that. But friendship is this unique space where you're you're choosing to be close to somebody and there's a, a delight in that and there's um, a freedom in that and there's a kind of ongoing um, energy of that which needs to be directed in good ways. So I think of my, my best friend, Rachel, um, who's a, a student here. When, when she and I first met, one of my observations was like, we have a, an awful lot of chemistry. There's just like a lot of sort of energy that arises from mm-hmm. our, um, our connection. Very different people though we are. And so it's going to be important that we just we direct that energy in the right places. Right. Um, and one of the things that I increasingly believe is that every healthy Christian friendship is directed toward mission. It's not directed toward like me and my friend having fun together, making each other happy. Um, those, those things can also be true. But at the heart of Christian friendship is a shoulder to shoulder working at the work that the Lord has given us. Now, now for me, because a lot of the work the Lord has given me is writing, it's like super important to my writing process that I have Rachel and um, one or two other friends who are also authors and, and, and speakers and sort of thinking about these things who I can just like bounce ideas off on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And so, so my writing kind of very proceeds out of my friendship in, in that sense. But it also proceeds out of my relationships with other close friends whom I might see for like play dates and who, you know, yeah. one of my best friends is a stay-at-home mum raising her four daughters, homeschooling them, um, you know, profoundly godly, very intelligent woman. And my time with Julie helps me emotionally and it helps me sort of uh, intellectually and spiritually. I can bring that back into my writing and, and my speaking work. Um, or I think of my friend Carolyn, who she works full-time, her husband's full-time at home with the kids. She and I meet every Thursday evening to walk down the river and pray together. She lives just around the corner from me. Um, and she's my sort of accountability partner to where we have a no-holds-barred, tell each other all the things, mm. um, pray for each other in the midst of all our things, and yeah. be the person primarily charged with like challenging each other when that's, that's necessary. Yeah. So I, I benefit hugely from a handful and you know the, there are others as well I, one of my very very closest friends uh, is not a christian lives in the uk and we've been like best friends since we were 16 and and i benefit de- greatly from the the love and the challenge in our friendship as well um so i i feel like i'm someone who, a lot of my kind of daily joy comes out of friendship mm. and a lot of my work is fueled by friendship so I, i'm really interested in how, especially you mentioned Rachel, but then others as well who write. So so much of your friendship seems to be forged around a common vocation. I know Rachel is a writer as well. Um, would you, if, if there are people listening 
who are thinking, okay, how do I develop, how do I go about kind of being intentional with friendships? Would you encourage Christians to consider who are those people who, one, make you more Christ-like, challenge you in that sense, but also, as you said, it has to be missional, it has to be directed mm. missionally. And, and then you, you kind of leaned into missional through that channel of vocation. Would you, would you encourage people to even find folks who do similar type of work to what you do or consider the various vocations into which you're called? And then find those people who can challenge you to be Christ-like through those channels, those missional channels yeah. of vocation. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think we need a range. We need the people who may be called to the, the exact same kinds of things as we are. And that could be maybe we're um, very engaged in um, our local school community and looking for opportunities for to show love and, and to witness in those circles. And maybe we need like other Christian parents who will come alongside us in that. That could be you know really yeah. important space to look for. So it can be a whole range of different things that we could be called to. We'll need those who are shoulder to shoulder with us, fighting alongside us um, yeah. in that way. I think we also need people who have a different calling to us and who can help us to see that our thing isn't the only thing that the Lord is doing in the world. It's very easy to kind of zoom, zone in on your own stuff and elevate it above anybody else's mm. gospel work that's going to be happening in different ways. So I think it's important to see um, to be close to people who have very different life situations, very different callings. I find it personally very fruitful to have some friends who profoundly challenge me in, in my Christian walk. So, you know, for example, Rachel knows the Bible far better than I do, despite having been a Christian for like half as long as I have. So that's always a challenge to me. But then I have other close friends who are very new to Christianity. And so they're reading the Bible for the first time. And I'm sort of bringing them, them along with me. Yeah. Um, I had a friend a, a number of years ago who wasn't yet in the habit of reading the Bible every day. And I said, hey, why don't we do a deal? We'll like read through a, a book of the Bible. Um, and each morning we'll just text each other like, this is what I read. This is what I thought. Just like yeah. a quick, you know. Yeah. And so that that put it um, on on, a, on the bottom shelf for her. Is that the analogy people say? Yeah, bottom that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to just start a habit of reading the Bible every day. Yeah. Um, nothing super formal or structured, but just like, hey, let's do this together. So I think we need people who are kind of pulling us and we need other people who we're pulling along. Um, and we'll we'll often find that those who we thought we were just pulling along start to challenge us in ways that we're actually yeah. not very strong. Yeah. And and I absolutely see that in in my friendships with, with people who are maybe, you know, much newer Christians who in their minds I'm like way far down the track to them. But in fact, I'm increasingly noticing ways in which yeah. they're exposing my weaknesses in discipleship. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad you used that word discipleship. I was thinking the same. It sounds so similar, and certainly there are overlapping notions there. It's interesting, um, even as you're talking, despite critique of a little bit of, of uh, Lewis's thoughts, which are fa fantastic, but to your point, they're not so exegetical. They're, they're more drawing on classical And sources. I think he's wrong in some places as well. Like, I'm willing so, to say he's like flat. He, he's very much speaking to his, his own particular cultural right. space. Which That's right. He gives us that uh, imagery of friends walk kind of side by side, almost mm. shoulder, shoulder to shoulder or arm over shoulder. And that's, that's part of the imagery of friendship that he gives to us, which you've alluded to. And it's, it's interesting as well that Lewis even seemingly forged friendships around his own vocation. When we mm -hmm. think about Lewis and Tolkien, mm -hmm. part of their friendship is that they're reading their writings to one another and challenging yeah. each other. And it is missional. I've never heard anybody describe it quite that way. But it, to your point, it, it, does, it is kind of a missional. How are we leveraging our skills and our giftings and our work uh, unto these kinds of ends? Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask you about this. You mentioned um, 
a friend still back in the UK that you've been best friends since uh, you were 16. Mm-hmm. She's not a Christian. Correct. Tell me about how do we think about friendship with, I mean, genuine friendship with mm. people who are who are not Christians? Yeah, um, there's an extent to which I always feel a little bit surprised that my close non-Christian friends want to be my friend because often I will stand for and speak on things for which they profoundly disagree with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's true with Natasha, my friend in England. It's true with my friend Julia around the corner and my friend Adam. Like, there's, I've got a number of sort of people in, in my life who I'm like, I almost feel like, wait a minute, you, you do realize, <laughs> like, I, I represent the enemy in many of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on many issues. And there are times when that can be really hard. Um, the recent overturning of Ray, Ray v. Wade put intense pressure on one of my close Christian friendships sure. where I thought, I thought my, my friend has always known that I was pro-life. So I was like, it was surprising to me that this was something that threw her. But the difference in her mind was it was okay for me to be pro-life, but for me to be happy that my views were getting imposed on other people, um, that was very troubling to her. Yeah. And I can, un- I can understand that from, from her perspective. But it, it's really important to me that I, I do have good friendships with, with non-believers, not least because I, you know, I always want to be sharing the gospel with people and, and I think we do that um, in our words and in our lives. And, and partly as well, I don't want to be telling other people to do something that I'm not doing in my own life myself. Right. And, and being in, in real ongoing conversation with non-believers who are very smart, thoughtful, well-meaning people helps me to think so I'm a big believer in pursuing and maintaining close friendships with with non-Christians as well as with brothers and sisters. So you mentioned a couple in particular who are close friends, non-believers, but and you said you said that that you appreciate their friendship. Apparently, they appreciate yours. I'm I'm presuming that this is not people that you're having to constantly you're having to only reach out to them rather than a kind of a reciprocal nature here. Why is it? What is it about that friendship that you think they they would want to maintain with you? You said that you're surprised sometimes that they keep this up, but what is it that you think intrigues them or what's the appetite that they may have for a relationship with such a strong and outspoken Christian? I think sometimes we underestimate the extent to which our non-believing friends and neighbors and, and co-workers want to talk about the important things of life. Yeah, that's right. And are, are interested in hearing from somebody else's perspective. I think of my friend Julia, who I, I dedicated my latest book, Confronting Jesus, to her. She kindly, as I've got to know in the last few years, over the last year she has read all of my forthcoming books in draft manuscript, mm. and I've asked, her, you know, I've asked her to read them and give me feedback, which has been great. Um, and so I think somebody like her is is genuinely curious just about how I would think on these questions. I think knows me well enough to know that even if there are areas where we profoundly disagree on moral questions, that she knows that I'm coming to them with at least something of a, I don't want to say a good heart exactly, but like she, I think it's easy when you don't know real life people who profoundly disagree with you. For example, on a question like abortion, it's easy to demonize your opposition and to say, from either side of the fence actually, you know, for pro-life people to say, Look at all those baby killers over there. They're clearly like right. utterly morally bankrupt to right. think that this could be a thing. Or if you're coming from a pro-choice 
perspective to look at, at pro-life Christians and to say, you know, how profoundly uncaring they must be. They have no interest in, in women, women's rights and equality. And um, I think when you know real life people yeah. who's you, you've seen evidence of love in their lives, you can't make those brittle yeah. Um, general like those uh, carica- caricatures of, of folks who might profoundly disagree with you yeah. and so it's important to me to be in those relationships and I, and I think my non-Christian friends enjoy that from the other side of the fence as well uh, you're absolutely right about that I, I rarely hear this but on occasion you might hear someone who's on one side of the fence or the other and they're they're being asked to you know critique the other side and I love when when you do hear someone say well my friend who disagrees with me on this this mm. is the way they put the argument together yeah. And here's what I, here's what I can appreciate, but here's where I have to disagree. And that that changes the nature of the discussion entirely because yeah. you're talking about an actual human being instead of a mere sort of as you said brittle set of ideas that you can just swat away. Yeah. All right, we're, we're running out of time. I wish I could ask you kind of the you mentioned early on you've probably made every friendship mistake in the book. Mm. So I wish I could have you tell me what is the sort of the story of friendship in your own life, but we'll we'll save that for another podcast and maybe for the book. But um, you have three kids, Mm -hmm. and I trust that you're not only modeling but teaching them something about friendship. If you had to go back to to the 12-year-old Rebecca, what would you tell her about friendship? My best friend when I was 12 uh, was a culturally Hindu young woman named Mira, who we walked to to and from school together. And then when we got back from school, we'd call each other on the phone for like hours to talk about (laughs) nothing in particular. Sort of sweet. so I think I, I had the instinct that I needed close friends when I was 12. I, from around 12, maybe slightly before, was increasingly aware that I experienced same-sex attraction, hmm. which at the time I just thought this is something I'll grow out of. It was always actually directed towards much older girls, so it didn't really complicate my friendships. It was it more complicated my sort of internal emotional life. Um, as I got older and sort of went into college, the age gap between me and the people who I would have those feelings for became smaller and smaller. And so yeah. that became more scary. And I thought, you know, this is something I'm going to grow out of, um, but but didn't. So that was, you know, challenging for me as a Christian. Um, I think what I would tell my 12-year-old self is that myself today, like when you're a when you're what you would have considered then to be a proper grown-up, they would never quite feel like that's what we are. <laughs> um, you will be so loved um, and you will have a number of friends in addition to a loving husband and extremely loving children um, who actually do know you and really love you despite knowing you. And I think I would have been profoundly encouraged by that. Well said. So when does that book come out, the book on friendship? I think next spring or summer. I'm not actually quite sure. It's due in on the 1st of December is all I know. (laughs) Okay. So we'll look forward to that soon. So, Rebecca, this season of our podcast, we're emphasizing formation, spiritual formation or Christian formation wholly. Um, So I want to ask, in in this discussion about friendship, how would you make the connection between our formation as Christians and Christian friendship? They're so profoundly connected in my mind that I almost don't know where to begin. My friends are the people who deeply challenge me by their own lived example to grow in in holiness and in discipleship, whether it's in Bible reading or prayer or evangelism or or love and care for the poor. Um, So I I have the 
in my own life the sort of fruits of other people's virtues uh, that that are, are challenging to me. And my friends are also the people best positioned to call me out on my sin in a way that I know proceeds from love rather than just from judgment. And it's hard for us to grow when we only feel shamed. But if we hear from someone who we know loves us and wants to see the best in us and to call us to our best selves, saying, actually, here's an area where I think you are veering away from the Lord, that's a profound gift to us. Mm. I, I deeply appreciate my friend Carolyn with whom I weekly uh, except when there's travel disrupting it uh, get to meet and and share all our struggles with sin and all um all the you know the good and the bad and the ugly mm. in our lives and to know that there's someone who will see sin in my life almost before I do and be able to to call me back to the lord mm. is profoundly important and how can other people how can they follow your work and follow you I'm on Twitter for my sins. Well, I'm on Twitter because both my husband and my pastor told me if you're going to write a book, you have to be on Twitter. And you can't, like, defy both your husband and your pastor. You know, it's not okay. Um, And I'm also on Instagram. Um, I'm not a visual person at all, so Instagram is sort of a weird medium for me. Hmm. But I think I'm Rebecca McLaughlin in both because Rebecca McLaughlin is too long a name. Yeah. For either of those platforms. So you're not a TikToker? You're not, you're not oh, doing no, the TikTok thing? No. Are your kids on TikTok? Or no. Do you know this stuff? Oh, goodness. I wouldn't give my kids a f- I told my kids they can have a phone when they're 30. Um, <laughs> no, they're not going near social I media. I'm with you on that, by the way. Rebecca, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for your good work. Thanks for all the writing that you're continuing to do and for a very important and specific ministry that the Lord's given you. So thank you for that. Thanks. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern Seminary share what they're reading right now. Today we have Dr. David W. Jones, professor of Christian ethics at Southeastern Seminary. Dr. Jones, tell us what is on your bookshelf. I've got a a great book I've been looking at um, the past few months called Theology in Three Dimensions uh, by John Frame. And the reason why I've enjoyed this book so much, um, and John Frame is probably one of the most influential ethicists uh, in the late 20th uh, and into the 21st century. Uh, And in this short book, Frame explains in really basic readable terms kind of what's behind his moral system. Uh, That is his his three dimensions uh, that, as you might gain from the title. And so a great read that I think should find its way onto the bookshelf Uh, of all of our listeners. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture. If you in view, if you uh, (laughs) (laughs) were, Lord have mercy, I've I changed it up and I've completely tripped you up. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating review on your favorite podcast platform, whatever platform that is. Thanks for listening and we look forward to seeing you next week.